Marcello. Public Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk Report highlights the moon drifting in a dance across the evening sky. Wayne County community member Jennifer Canfield shares a bit of her inspiration as to why she keeps horses in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with educator and lead designer Andrew Faust at the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville, New York. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about permaculture farming practices. Coming up on today's Farming Country, first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. In Florida, days after Hurricane Ian, flooding continues and is getting worse in some communities on the Gulf Coast. NPR's Greg Allen reports the flooding has forced the closure of a major artery, Interstate 75. Authorities closed a 14-mile section of the interstate because of flooding caused by the Miyaka River. The headwaters of the river received more than 15 inches of rain from Hurricane Ian. The river is already two feet over its flood stage and won't crest until Saturday afternoon. Flooding from the Miyaka has brought new headaches to neighborhoods in Northport and surrounding communities in Charlotte County. Neighborhoods that escaped flooding from Ian's storm surge now are getting it from the river. National Guard troops have been stationed in the area and are using high-water vehicles to take people to safety. The National Weather Service has issued flood warnings for residents who live near the Miyaka and several other rivers swollen by Ian's heavy rain. Greg Allen, NPR News, St. Petersburg. Ian struck South Carolina yesterday. The National Hurricane Center expects the storm, no longer a hurricane, will bring treacherous conditions to parts of Virginia and West Virginia today. In Las Vegas today, survivors and family members of victims are gathering to remember the 60 people killed and hundreds wounded five years ago today in the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. NPR's Eric Westervelt reports. Much of the area where the killing occurred is now overflow parking for Raiders games. A sign says a memorial is coming. When is unclear. Now there is a football parking lot where people were murdered. It's horribly upsetting. Bartender Heather Goose was working the festival that night. For hours, she stayed beside people who were dead or dying, holding one stranger's hand. Goose calls her friendships with fellow survivors the only silver lining. I honestly don't know if a lot of us would have survived the last five years if it wasn't for the family that we made because of the tragedy that happened. This weekend, Goose will spend time with her survivor family, including the mother of one of the strangers she stayed with that night as he lay mortally wounded. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Las Vegas. A report by Iran's official news agency says an attack by armed separatists in southeastern Iran today left 19 people dead, including four members of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports. The unidentified assailants opened fire on a police station in the city of Zahidan. The provincial governor tells state media in addition to the dead, the attack wounded nearly three dozen Revolutionary Guard members. There was no immediate connection made between this attack and the nationwide anti-government protests that have rocked the country following the death of a young woman in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. 
The Sistan and Baluchistan province has been the scene of previous attacks on security forces. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. This is NPR News from Washington. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Wayne County community member Jennifer Canfield shares a bit of her inspiration as to why she keeps horses in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with educator and lead designer Andrew Faust. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about permaculture farming practices at the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville, New York. But first, here's Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk Report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. The moon will drift eastward this week as it approaches Saturn, culminating with the moon being 7 degrees off Saturn's lower left side on Wednesday. Tonight, the moon will be 57 degrees west, or to the right, of Saturn. Throughout the week, the moon will drift backward, that is, from west to east, across the sky. On Wednesday, the moon will be 7 degrees east, or to the right, of Saturn. While the moon will be racing across the sky, Saturn will appear to be stationary. The moon will be moving about 14 degrees across the sky each night. Part of the reason for the moon's apparent swift movement on the celestial dome is its proximity to Earth. The moon is vastly closer to Earth compared to the background stars. As a result, a small change in direction by the moon corresponds to a large change relative to the background stars. You can see this for yourself using your thumb. Close one eye and hold up your thumb with an outstretched arm. Keeping your thumb stationary, alternate which eye is closed. Notice how your thumb moves relative to the background? Now hold your thumb close to your face and repeat the experiment. Your thumb appears to move further relative to the background when it is closer to your face. The same concept is occurring with the moon and the background stars. Track the moon this week as it drifts eastward in the sky, coming within 7 degrees of Saturn on Wednesday. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Here is neighbor and Wayne County community member Jennifer Canfield, who shares a bit of her inspiration as to why she keeps horses on Diamond Sea Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Hello, I'm Jennifer Canfield, and it's a pleasure to be here with Rosie. I'm here, I guess, because I have horses. <laughs> so I've had them most of my life. I was a city kid. I was born with horses on the brain to the the great displeasure of my parents. And luckily, my father wanted to have a farm up here and 
bought a farm in Abramsville. It was our first farm. And I was lucky enough to have a mentor who was a horseman, got me through my early stages. And then I joined 4-H. And I was lucky to be able to compete in 4-H. And then because of my mentor, I was influenced to have American quarter horses. I wanted to be just like him. And uh, so I ended up breeding mares over the rest of my life. I did it for 30 years. I raised competition quarter horses and good bloodlines. I kept the foundation bloodlines that built the breed. And so now I'm left with the remnants. <laughs> and I love my horses. To me, they're, they're royalty. I treat them, hopefully, as if they are. And they give me a lot of creative juices to continue with other things that I have in mind to do. And they also provide great comfort in times of stress. I also managed therapy program for an in-house group over in Loch Sheldrake. And that was a great pleasure for people with disabilities. And I was certified as an equine specialist for psychotherapists who use horses in, in therapy for their clients. And everything that horses show me is that people can benefit from being with them, whether you compete, whether you raise them for companionship, whether you study them, whether you share their their habits with your friends. It's a great benefit to be involved in the world of horses. If you can make it happen, I strongly advise it. <laughs> Jennifer, your background sounds like is how you were inspired to be what you are right now. What keeps you going now? Well, because of how much I've always loved horses, I can't be without them. It's not mentally or physically possible. I have to be with the horses. I want the horses that I have left to have their lives be healthy and sound as for as long as they can be, so I will not hand them over to anyone else because there is a danger of them falling into the slaughter pipeline. And I will not let that happen to my horses. What keeps me going is their innocence and being in an environment where you're not being judged. The horses are very accepting of their circumstances, which is unbelievable to me. And it humbles me to see how they accept what humans design for them. So it's like an elixir. I can't resist being with them. That was Jennifer Canfield sharing a bit of her inspiration as to why she keeps horses in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Jennifer and Leroy Canfield are part of the production called Why I Farm, currently on display at the Digital Gallery inside the Union in Narrowsburg, New York. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I've come to the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville to speak with Andrew Faust, who lives there and is the lead designer and educator at the Center. Andrew, would you describe your home and your farm? Certainly. At the Center here, we focus on practical methods of applying permaculture 
and ecological design to the landscape, how we manage, for instance, the 10 acre meadow here that was an old hay meadow, is we keep in a meadow by mowing a perimeter path, mowing paths throughout the meadow that give me the ability to both manage it as a wild ecology, where I can have it be in what I call bite-sized pieces, where I can start to select for, let's say, wild apples and wild blueberries that are volunteering and mow around them and help them do better. So the property is a place where we can demonstrate and educate management methods that are somewhat unique to this more observation-based approach to working with land. And it's also a site where we have immersion experiences for graduates who want to come and learn how to do straw bale construction or natural building. We also have many examples of gravity-fed water systems where we put rain tanks, larger ones like 1,500-gallon tanks, off of our buildings that supply all of the facilities for the classes that we're running. So when people are here taking a straw bale class or a permaculture class, the water that they're using is coming from the rain and is gravity-fed and pressurized naturally at the tap that they're using for brushing their teeth or taking a shower. So the site has off-grid water systems that are demonstration and farming and gardening techniques as well as natural building. The diversity of your meadow was evident when we walked up here to this classroom out in the middle of, I guess it's a field. It's got some beautiful yellow flowers, maybe goldenrod. Mm -hmm. A lot of goldenrod, yep. Goldenrod uh, is the big play around here. And we passed some purple flowers as we walked in and some white ones. It was just full of flowers. Yeah. Yeah, we purposefully encourage things that we appreciate, both the aesthetic of as well as the function that they perform for pollinator and habitat. Things like Joe Pie Weed and Queen Anne's Lace and the Goldenrod, as we mentioned, as well as less common plants like Boneset and Yarrow. And we certainly still enjoy the introduced species as well, like the purple loosestrife in its proper Plenty place. Plenty of that out there. Yep. How big is your property? Is it big enough for a self-sustaining lifestyle? Yes, it is. I wouldn't say that we are achieving that by any stretch. And it has to do with intention because our real focus here is more education and consultation. So I do quite a bit of work off-site for clients installing a lot of the things that we also have as demonstration examples like the nut trees, the fruit trees, the gravity-fed water systems, as well as natural buildings. We've built three straw bale houses in Ulster County for clients. We're right now the crew of graduates who build natural buildings are finishing a hempcrete house over off of the Stony Kill. So we do quite a bit of off-site work as consultants, designers, and builders, and gardeners. And so our own site ends up not being something that we farm and garden to the teeth as much as we could. So we just pick certain things that we feel are fun to be self-sufficient in, like eggs, like garlic, like potatoes, and things that are achievable and don't take a huge lift to get there, you know, lettuce and arugula and all the greens and the growing season are coming out of our garden. But we aren't rugged homesteaders who are trying to be food independent at a home scale as much as we could, which isn't to say that I don't see that as a desirable or meaningful pursuit. It certainly is. Simply happens to be that we're pretty busy running the permaculture treadmill of making a living doing this full time.
Is it just you out there planting all these nut trees and spreading the blueberries around, or do you have help? I have help. So my graduates, I mentor for a good solid two years minimum. I offer to work with all of my graduates, which are literally thousands of people. It's been 14 years teaching a program, sometimes five times a year. That's a 72-hour certification course that's very unique to this area and our approach. So we attract a really great student base because we are focused on a program that gives people a sense of where they could go as they start to shift their career from perhaps working at a university or a public school or working as a therapist or a consultant or a yoga teacher. And then they come across our permaculture program and think, you know, I'd like to do a little more with my living that involves being outside. Maybe they have carpentry skills and they want to learn things about natural building and working with local lumber. So we train up all of our graduates through our consultation work. So they're often coming with me on jobs so that I can both be teaching them how to do these things and paying them an hourly wage and they're helping me on projects where I can really use the help. The challenge with that is that I get turnover. So I don't have continuity as much as I might like, but it works out really well as an apprenticeship training program. Do you have accommodations for your students, some kind of dormitory? Not really. We typically take people for longer periods of time when it's the good season for glamping. And so we have the showers out here and we have outhouses and we have sinks and we have this cabin for people to camp in. And you said you don't try to grow everything. What do we focus on growing? Right now, what I'm really keen on is akin to another project that I'd like to share with you that is the Permaculture Living Lands Trust. And that is a recently approved 501c3 public charity that I've started with a dear friend of mine, David Harper, who's been an advisor group that, and that group's name is Agrarian Trust. The Agrarian Trust, relevant to Hudson Valley residents, was started by Severin, who started the Greenhorns. They still exist, but have a little less fire because Severin has moved on to putting a lot of their energy into agrarian trust. And David, a good friend of mine who helped run Natural Living Lands Trust, the Brandywine Conservancy, as well as a place down in South Carolina called the PD Land Trust, he and I have been cooking up this project for a good number of years where we want to combine the strengths of the conservation community and the land trust community with the strengths of the permaculture methods, which simply put, is about the work I was doing with restoration ecology, brought about this awareness that we could be planting more multifunctional plants when we do these reforestation projects. And simply what I mean by that is that we could be planting heart nut, we could be planting pecans, along with planting sycamores and native oak trees. And so David and I are working on that project. And a lot of what I'm planting here these days are those tree crops, are those hybrid varieties, selected varieties of hickories. Some of what I was showing you down in the flats there that we have growing of these homestead chestnut. They're called the Dunstan hickory, as well as hazelnuts. And really going in large for the nut trees that are hybridized or domesticated, but just a step away from being wild genetics. We did a nice planting of them along the Esopus that I'm excited about here with Ulster County Soil and Water in a park that's called Harry Thayer Park that's right off of the Esopus in Kingston. 
I'm going to pin you down and ask what vegetables you grow because I definitely want to know what grows well here. What vegetables we're growing this year? Cucumbers, cabbages, tomatoes, arugula, lettuce, carrots, turnips, radishes, broccoli, squash, of course. Those are most of what we're growing. We had a great garlic harvest this year. I would agree on the cucumbers. We have a refrigerator full of cucumbers. Right. And, you know, you can't do much with them except just eat them. Oh, yeah. Right now, we're also challenged to figure out what to do with all the cucumbers and all the squash. <laughs> and getting ready for the what do we do with all the tomatoes wave that's about to come. Well, tomatoes you can can yeah. and freeze. Yeah. But cucumbers you can't. Right, so either we're doing refrigerator pickles with vinegar or we're doing live ferments with salt, which is a little more challenging to not end up with mushy cukes. So we're still figuring out our recipes on that, but continue to aspire to find a good ferment recipe and always find that the refrigerator pickles work really well. For a quick spell, for like a good month or so afterwards, they can at least draw out the time you have to eat the cucumbers when you're inundated with them. We like doing ferments quite a bit. We make sauerkraut, we make kimchi, we make a lot of our own condiments, and those are usually fermented forms of, say, hot sauce and mustards. I was surprised that cabbage is one of your things that you grow, because I have a terrible time with things in that family. They get eaten like crazy by little caterpillars. Absolutely, yeah. They're not easy. I, I will say that we have a set of cabbages that we started earlier in the season that are in really awful shape and we have another group of cabbages that I started what I thought was going to be too late to look great. So I'm starting to think maybe a later planting of cabbages could be a good exploration in this area for gardeners who are listening. If we planted them let's say like two to three weeks ago I think you're in a pretty good spot for starting to miss a lot of the predation that happens from the cabbage moths and the other squash beetles and a lot of them, if you just miss a certain window, your plants will make it to the other side and be a healthier specimen. Sometimes it's about timing with these annuals. Unfortunately, I can't go back in time. Yeah. Andrew, what animals do you raise and do you slaughter and butcher them yourself? Largely no. We have at times slaughtered our own meat birds, so chickens, that we've felt needed to be called if we had let's say too many roosters at one time then we slaughtered them and used them usually for stew we have dwarf nigerian goats that are pretty much pets they're a lot of fun for children which is a big part of why we have them they're really a great companion animal you're not milking them though we were at one time because we bred them because obviously in order to milk animals you have to breed them and that can sometimes become a load of work that you may not decide you want to get into. So we were more focused on our home time and our family life and not doing as much work off-site. And so we were breeding the goats and we were selling the babies and we were getting milk from them. But some of those things, as our now 13-year-old daughter Juniper's gotten older and we've also gotten busier with our consultation and our work in local politics and in our community, we've pulled away from some of the things like breeding goats as a major investment of time. But I think it's important to say, as somebody who enjoys a certain amount of hobby farming and sometimes market scale farming, 
animals are a whole other level of commitment. To me, the low-hanging fruit, typically the easy animal, and again, it's not easy if you have serious predator pressure, is stuff like chickens. I really enjoy having fresh eggs. I enjoy raising my own birds. So if there's one animal that I'm pretty much invariably going to have if I have a home in the country, when I do, it's always going to be chickens. I'm with you on that. Andrew, do you have excess produce and is it certified organic and where do you sell it? We aren't certified organic. I do have produce that I sell at the Ellenville Market on Market, which happens two times a month. We're not certified simply because, to me, when you're dealing with face-to-face -face sales, you can pretty much just tell your buyer that your practices are, I like to use Elliot Coleman's term, which is beyond organic. Because organic doesn't necessarily mean you're using heirloom breeds of plants or animals. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're using trace minerals or micronutrients. So there's a lot of things that we do that are, practically speaking, going beyond what organic would mean. Can people come to visit the farm here, and how could they get in touch to arrange a visit? Yeah, certainly. Thanks for asking. On our website, you'll see we've got a contact and send us a contact email. We've even, on our homepage, have a description of that that's called a farm tour that we make available to people who want to learn about the water systems, the energy systems, any of the things that we're doing here that you'd like to come and get more of a practical observation of. We love walking people around and talking about how things work, what works, what doesn't work, where we are now in our learning curve. So now you know about a very special farm and educational center in Ellenville. My guest today has been Andrew Faust, lead designer and educator at the Center for Bioregional Living and owner of this self-sustaining farm. Well, almost self-sustaining. If you know of a local expert that I should interview for a future Now You Know segment, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. There's so much going on in Sullivan County today. On Saturday, October 1st, happening right now next to the Tustin Theater at 192 Bridge Street, the Narrowsburg Beautification Group is sponsoring a plant swap and sale from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. Way back in 2019, these little chirping chicks caught my ear at the Hilly Acres Sweet Farm Days event. Fast forward to now, in Jeffersonville, New York, Hilly Acres Farm Days event is taking place today, October 1st, from 10 a.m. until 3 p.m. The fun includes live music, hay rides, pumpkin decorating, and antique tractor exhibits. Yummy craft vendors include R.I. Myers Century Farm Homemade Ice Cream. Come meet the animals and the farmers who raise them. 
and learn firsthand about life on this farm. The location is 32 Wall Road in Jeffersonville. More information is available on Hilly Acres' Facebook page. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guests, Jennifer Canfield from Diamond Sea Horse Farm in Wayne County, Pennsylvania, and educator and lead designer Andrew Faust from the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville, New York. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country and financially supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org. WJFF Radio Catskills annual music sale is Saturday, November 26th. The sale features records, stereo equipment, musical instruments, and CDs. But it's only possible because people like you donate vinyl LPs in good condition, working turntables, stereo equipment, and other gently used musical instruments. If you have something good you don't need anymore, donate it to the music sale. Email manager at WJFFRadio.org. Thanks. Radio Catskill, keeping you connected with the 